Hey guys, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians, please. Could have kept worshiping a little while longer. But worship's not just a song. Worship's an attitude of the heart. And so we can approach the scriptures as we open up his word in such a way that gives him the honor and glory, do his name and do his word. Bowed before the scriptures is the very word of God. That is an act of worship that is acceptable and holy before God. Amen? So let's worship by studying his word this morning. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians, and we'll be in uh, chapter 2. A quick heads up. Um, just It seems like we, we haven't seen a lot of traffic on our uh, prayer chain lately, and it, we just were talking about this, and I think a lot of people don't, maybe don't even know that we actually have such a thing. Um, but if you are going through something, or you have a friend who's going through something, you just want to kind of rally the body of Christ to pray for you, or to pray for your friend, or whatever's going on, um, we would love to hear about that. And so what you can do is, you can email anything like that to prayerchain at heritagefellowship.net. That's our, our prayer chain address. If you're not on the prayer chain and you would like to receive those alerts, those, those uh, uh, prayer requests, then you can email the same address, prayerchain at heritagefellowship.net, and just say, please add me to the prayer chain. And uh, we would love to be able to have um, everybody rallied together. Um, also, one other thing, if anything, um, a, a lot of people don't know that we do this as well, but um, whenever things go down, like, like someone's going into the hospital or there's a death in the family, um, we as a church really want to be able to rally around them in that difficult time, whether it be through even something as simple as sending flowers, hospital visits, those sorts of things. And um, sometimes word trickles down through, you know, mutual acquaintances and stuff, and sometimes it doesn't. And, um, but you could help us by either calling the church office or emailing us. Um, you could email through the prayer chain. Probably the easiest way, though, is, would be to email us direct. We have an email address that's info at heritagefellowship.net. If you're ever going through something like that and you, and you want a pastor to visit or an elder to come visit and pray for you, please let us know with that. We would love to do that and, uh, um, and, and be able to rally around. You guys, and just wanted to put that out there and let you guys know that was available. Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, though technically this passage starts at verse 23 of chapter 1. But for ease, we'll be in chapter 2. That's where we're at today. So, God, we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our King, our Redeemer. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. May the wisdom of men fail. May the wisdom of God be lifted up. But Lord, may we approach your scripture not so much about how we can make our lives better, not so much about practical advice, not a self-help book. But God, may we approach your scripture because we want to see you. We want you to be high and lifted up. We know, Lord, you yourself, Jesus, said that all of these things testify of you. So, Jesus, I pray that as we go through this passage, Lord, may we see you. May we gain a greater understanding of who you are, of how you love us, and of our call to go and serve others. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But let's start in chapter 1, verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. 
This is a really strong phrase to start out. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 5 through 11, but taking this little intro is very important to kind of move into because this is a really passionate plea that Paul's making here in this, the beginning of this particular chapter. Paul, as you guys know, is the one who planted a church in Corinth. The letter, this is a letter to the people of Corinthians. It's a church Paul had planted many years previously. And Paul's writing to them, and he says to them right off the bat, he says, but I call God to witness to me, or as we might say, as God is my witness, or some might even say, I swear, like you'd put your hand on the Bible and swear before God. It starts out right out of the gate with this huge, passionate plea to God, because the situation between Paul and the people in Corinth isn't great. Their relationship is dicey at best. It's a very difficult situation. Um, We know that Paul had written a letter to them once. That's 1 Corinthians. We spent about the last year studying that, addressing some real difficult issues, some some major sin that was going on there in the congregation. And it was a pretty in-your-face letter. It was dealing straight up with some real difficult stuff. And then as Paul was away for a little while, some people came in and began to sort of rally the troops in Corinth against Paul. They were calling disciples unto themselves. They were building themselves up as these uh, special, Paul will even refer to them as super apostles later in this letter. And they were throwing Paul under the bus. This guy, he's not really of God. And he's just manipulating you guys. He's trying to build up followers because he's a prideful guy. To stop listening to him, you follow us. That's what's being taught them. And so Paul hears of this, knows this is all going on, and Corinthians tells us that Paul made a visit to the people of Corinth. And it was a painful, he refers to it as a painful visit. When he comes to Corinth and he's there to show his love, he refers to himself, he is their spiritual father. He loves these people so much. But Instead of them greeting him and and wrapping arms around him and hearing what he has to say and loving him, there were people in the church that attacked him. They threw Paul under the bus completely, publicly mocked and slandered him in a really difficult way. And it was so severe that Paul ends up leaving Corinth and goes off to Ephesus with his, literally with his tail tucked between his legs, grieving. And so this letter, 2 Corinthians, has a very different tone than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is very, what are you doing? And 2 Corinthians, as you're going to see going through these, he's writing from pain and sorrow and hardship. It's a tear-stained letter to the people that he loves. And so Paul, he retreated, he left the people of Corinth, and he wrote what is referred to as a severe letter dealing with what's going on. So they get another letter from him. That letter's not been preserved. It's not part of the canon of Scripture, but the Scripture tells us that this letter did exist. Paul wrote them about things that were going on. And then these people that are there trying to build their following, they start throwing Paul under the bus again, and they're saying all sorts of things about him. And Paul wants to come deal with it. He wants to come to Corinth. We saw last week, remember? He says, okay, I'm going to go to Macedonia and I'm going to swing by and visit you in Corinth on the way, try to work some stuff out. And then when I go to Macedonia, on the way back, I'm going to come back through Corinth again. He really is concerned for them and for the situation. But his plans change. And he ends up not coming by at all. And the Corinthian people knew about his plans, and now he's bailed on those plans, and so they're seizing this opportunity. Some people in the church are seizing this opportunity to say, see, told you, he doesn't really love you. First of all, he's fickle. 
He's just changing his mind whenever he wants. Oh, sure, he'll say yes to your face. I'm coming to see you. But the moment a better opportunity comes, he's going to bail on you and go with someone else, like maybe the Ephesians. He likes them better than you anyway. It's amazing how human nature just hasn't changed, huh? He likes them better than us. That's what's going on. But they also say some other things. They say that he's just an arrogant jerk. He's a prideful guy, doesn't have the courage to come here and confront us to our face because he's a coward. You guys saw how he all took off running last time like a scared chicken. And so now he's writing letters again and he's being a coward. He's just trying to control and manipulate you guys from all the way over there in Ephesus where his favorites are. And Paul is heartbroken over this. And we get a window into how severe things have gotten by the way Paul starts this. It's a little bit lost in our own translation and understanding. But when he says, but I call God to witness against me. This is a passionate plea. He's saying, just like I'll put my hand on a Bible, stand before the holy God, I swear to you this isn't true. But clearly that some people were making some strong words. There were people in Corinth who harbored some dark thoughts against Paul. So what's Paul's response going to be? What would your response be? I mean, just think of all the back and forth over and over and over. I love you guys. And then they slap him down. I love you guys. And then they disappoint him. I love you guys. And then they sin. And it's just this complete train wreck of a church. And every time Paul extends himself out there, it comes back to bite him. Every time, the last time he came to visit, he gets his rear end handed to him and gets run out of town. I mean, it just seems like they're never going to change. They're never going to listen. They're never going to get it. And they're always going to be a problem. So at what point would you quit? I, sooner than Paul. That's my answer. I don't know about you guys, but, but sooner than Paul. And yet look what Paul says, his response. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul says, my writing to you was not about prideful manipulation. I'm not motivated by power. The only power I'm motivated by is the love that I have for you. That's why. And he says, am I not coming to you? It wasn't about me being fickle. It wasn't that I like someone else better than you. It was mercy because I I was certain our relationship at that time could not stand and survive another visit. With what had happened, Paul was convinced if I go there again, their hearts aren't in a place and maybe even his own heart not in a place to be able to have that kind of meeting again and have it withstand. Have you ever been in one of those situations where no matter how hard you try to fix it, it just seems like it's just making it worse? And this is what Paul's doing. I love you. 
I wanted, he said, I desired to come see you twice, but I knew I did not want to come to another painful visit. Our relationship will not survive this anymore. And so I skipped that visit, but my motivation in that was love, trying to help. And so he instead, instead of risking the chance that their relationship would end, he stays back and he writes them this letter. It's referred to as the severe letter that he writes to them. Whether it's because it's out of severe anguish or because of severe things that were going on, he writes this letter to him and he sends it to him. This letter's no longer in existence, like I said, but he writes them. And now Paul says all of this stuff here as an intro for what we're really going to be spending our time on today, verses 5 through 11. So here's what I want you to understand so, to give you sort of the framework for verses 5 through 11 before we move forward. Now, first of all is this, unlike many throughout just, just Christian history in general, Paul constantly refuses to give up on his brothers and sisters in the church. He fights for unity and peace and brotherhood more than anybody you'll probably find apart from Jesus Christ in history. A group of people he could have willingly turned his back on a long time ago, he won't do it. And he continues to strive. He continues to love them. Too often we, let's just be honest, too often we are done way before the point that Paul's at. I mean, and we might even look for scripture to give us the out. Well, Jesus says, don't put your pearls before swine. And these people are pigs, so I'm out. Or more specifically, what Jesus says when he makes those words is that these people do not understand the treasure of the effort, your love, whatever it is that you're putting before them, and they're trampling all over it. So you've got to stop doing that. And there may be places where you do need to withdraw from some of those kinds of things. But what Paul refuses to do is cut them off completely and say, I'm just done with you. And the honest truth is most of us would have. We don't have the kind of dedication to one another in the modern Christian church that the people had at that time. I, I don't know if that's a product of the fact that we have multiple churches in areas now where back in the day it would be the church of Corinth and the church of Ephesus. And, you know, we can just bail and go somewhere else. But that's not what Paul does. He sticks it out and he's in. We'll see why in just a little bit. So understand that, that Paul continues to pursue them even when they don't want to be pursued. It's really important. The second thing is this. He's not bragging. He's not patting himself on the back. Remember how I just kept coming after you guys? He's setting for them an example of what he wants them to do in verses 5 through 11. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now Paul turns the attention from the relationship one-on-one -on -one between him and the Corinthian church, and we've got a triangular relationship here. There's, there's Paul, there's the Corinthian church, and then there's this other person, this other individual, this unnamed man, we assume man, that's here in this particular story. Someone who had offended, and Paul is saying now, this person has not just caused me harm, and he says, and I'm not putting it too severely, he's harmed all of you. That's who the attention is now turned to. So the question is, who is this guy? What's this guy's story? We don't know for sure. Um, there are many within uh, Christian history and Christian tradition that believe that this guy is the guy who gets excommunicated from the church according to Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you guys remember, there was a guy who was involved in an incestuous, adulterous relationship. He was in bed literally with his father's wife. 
and the church is celebrating it like, oh, the grace of God, look how great this is that you can even do such a thing. Like they were celebrating it. And Paul says, what are you doing? This person shouldn't celebrate this. This person should be removed from your fellowship before he corrupts what's going on here. And he's, this guy needs to be re- removed from the church completely. And so some people believe that this is who he's being referred to here in this particular text. There's no, I actually had always leaned that way, but as I studied it this week, the honest truth is there's no real tangible evidence that this is who Paul is talking about. Really the only specific link is it is someone who's been excommunicated. We'll get to that in just a second. The other possibility that also a, a huge portion of, of uh, biblical scholars and stuff believe that this could refer to is that this might actually refer to the person, the individual who, when Paul came and visited Corinth, led the charge in throwing Paul under the bus and mocking him and getting him run out of town. That this would be the guy that when Paul came to Corinth in that painful visit, this is the guy that said, just slanderous things about Paul, threw him under the bus, and that he left. That, they, would, they would use his evidence to say that it talks about the fact that he had offended him as well and all these kinds of things. Um, there, there definitely seems to be a lot more evidence for that in particular, but the reality is that we don't really know for sure. And in some ways, maybe that's good because knowing us, we would say, that's how you forgive that person, but that doesn't say anything about people in this situation. And, and it's almost as if the Holy Spirit keeps it intentionally vague. Because the focus is forgiveness in general, not a specific type, okay? So there's this guy. All we know is, is that he's been excommunicated from the church. As Paul puts it, he was punished by the majority. And the fact that he uses the phrase majority to show that this guy, because of his sin and his behavior, was kicked out of the church, the word majority also would lead us to believe there was a minority who didn't agree with it. I would say in our current culture, our current context, that minority is now the majority. What I mean is, is that no one thinks we should ever kick anyone out of church for anything. I mean, you you might do a whole lot of things, but the church, that's the place where we're welcoming and our arms are always open and we're here for them and it's grace and forgiveness and we might do a lot of things, but you can't kick them out of church. That's the place where everyone's welcome. You can't be serious, Paul. Kick someone out of church? Well, you can go back to our teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 for more specifics on this, but the situation is this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that in a situation where someone is caught up in a continual sin that they refuse to repent of. And you've followed the model for biblical church discipline that even Jesus lays out in Matthew 18. You've gone to your brother in humility, as Galatians tells us, in love, wanting to restore them, wanting to win them back. You go to your brother and you're like, man, this is dangerous. Look what you're doing. Come on, man, you, you need to repent from this and return. And if the person's saying, no, I'm not gonna do that, then you go and you bring an elder from the church and you're confronting them about this situation and, and you're still, you're asking them, you're trying to win them back. It's not about coming coming in in power and trying to tell these people what to do or any of that kind of stuff. It's about trying to win them back. But over and over and over, these people are refusing to do that. No, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not going to repent for what I'm doing. I'm going to continue doing that. It gets to a certain point where the church is to excommunicate that person from the congregation. You're to tell them that you can't fellowship with us anymore. Brokenhearted for sure. There's some people that enjoy that. Like, yeah, kick them out. No, broken hearted, you're to remove this person from fellowship. 
And, and look what it says here. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. And the reason is this, is that Paul is saying, look, the sin that goes on and the pain, even of church discipline, but the whole situation, it is not just a pain that involves like one person. This is a church-wide issue. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And the idea is this, listen, this is really important. Please hear me on this. The church is not a social club. The church is not a once a week social gathering. The church is a group. It is an eternal relationship of brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ so that they might gather together as the body of Christ. Our relationships extend so much farther than you can possibly imagine. They are so much more permanent than we could possibly realize. And it would kill Paul to see the way so many people treat the church in our culture today. The ending of relationships over nothing. We got lots of churches we can choose from. And in our valley, we have lots of great churches that we can choose from. But what ends up happening, oh, they offended me. I'm going to bail. I'll go over to this one. Relationships severed. None of the hard work of reconciliation goes on. We'll just go to the next person. Or we have the people that it's kind of like Mick Church. I'll just go to this church for this, and this church for this, and this church for that, and this church for that. That way I get to have it my way. In the meantime, no fellowship, no real community, nobody knows me, no discipline, no accountability. I'm not serving anyone. I'm not contributing anywhere. That would drive Paul insane. I can't even imagine the letter he would write us today. It's just the truth. Church was so much more. It is treasured by Paul and the scriptures. I mean, you got to understand, remember, Jesus spilled his blood that he might gather his church together. He spilled his blood that we would be brothers and sisters in a church community together. And then, oh, how easily we will throw that away. That killed, would kill Paul to see how people can just go from bride to bride to bride, if you will. The design is that this is a committed body of believers who serve one another. They practice their gifts with one another. We benefit from the practice of spiritual gifts with one another. We love one another. We forgive one another. We're there for one another. And and don't misunderstand me too. When you're talking about taking someone who's in sin and now this sin has happened and it threatens to infect the whole lump, the whole congregation, that if we turn our back on this thing, this could grow and it can pollute the whole church. And it had happened in Corinth. I mean, it had gone from this guy's having an incestuous relationship and it had already progressed to the point where the Corinthian people seemed to have, it's just a great idea. And so who knows where it's going to go after that. And Paul's saying, look, you, you can't do that. That will infect and pollute the church of God. And so if he won't repent, he has to be removed. But don't misunderstand that. That's not just because we want the church to stay nice and neat and tidy and perfect. If you're visiting us, you are not currently sitting in a nice, neat, tidy, perfect church. You're sitting in a room full of absolute sinners who have found the grace of Jesus Christ and who are not perfect. 
We will be one day, but we're not there yet. We're trying our best, and we will let you down as a guarantee. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus the entire time. This is not perfection in here. But the idea of church discipline and having someone removed from the congregation like that, it's not just about we want to protect our church. It's for the good of the individual as well. This is not utilitarianism. Because the church was so treasured and so valued that this is like ultimate punishment, if you will. When you're trying to get your kids' attention, they're goofing off the dinner table, they're not eating their food, they're misbehaving, they're throwing stuff, and you want to get order restored to the table. How do you do it? You, I'm going to take your asparagus away. No. What do you say? No dessert for you right? You take away the treasured thing, right? In our household, my daughter, though we weren't for it in the beginning, my mom for her birthday at 10 years old got her a tablet. And we were just like, oh, we can't be at that stage already. Like we, we didn't want the electronic world and all that, but here we are. But there's, a, there's been a benefit. You talk about a wonderful uh, uh, negotiating tool. I'm going to take away your tablet. Man, countenance changes. It's awesome. But, but guys, this is, what's, this is what's going on here. The idea is that, that a person who is a part of the church and enjoying the benefits of community, enjoying the benefits of the spiritual gifts, the interaction, all of these things, and walking in a selfish, I will call my own shots, unrepentant sin, they are damaging themselves. And when you've got one foot in the church and one foot in the world, it's really hard to get to somebody. But because there's some sin going on here, but they're doing just enough good things that they feel okay about their overall situation. And so think about scriptures like where Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out. The idea is, look, if you're on fire for me, awesome, we're going to do some stuff. But if you're cold, at least you're in the midst of sin and you don't have just enough religion to make you feel okay. But when you're in the middle, I can't convict you. I can't get through. You think you're okay because you're doing enough stuff here to make up for it. And so the person is to be removed from fellowship in the church. And they're literally excommunicated, treated as an unbeliever, so that the prodigal son story can unfold. So that this person can come to the end of their own devices and realize, just like the son and the prodigal son can go, it was so much better to be in the household of the father than to be out here in this pig pen. I'll return humbly. I'll just be a servant if I have to, but I want to go home. That's the idea. So for that story to play out, that means the church in that analogy, if we're applying it to us, becomes the one like the father who's doing what? Arms open, waiting for them to come. And this is what Paul's talking about in this particular passage. So this is what he does. He says, the idea is church is so valued in that culture, the idea of living outside of this gospel community is just unthinkable. And so you're going you're to remove them from fellowship that they might grieve a godly repentance. We're going to see that. Let's move forward. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul says the punishment's enough. 
He's been removed from fellowship, but the punishment's enough, it should cease. To this man's credit, he has realized his sin, he's realized the value of Christian community, he is sorrowful, um, and he's repenting. And Paul says, it's enough, no more punishment, we don't want him to be um, swallowed up by continual punishment. If we, if we keep the guy outside now, it's just purely punitive and, and what we want to do now is bring him back into fellowship, and he uses the phrase, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The word overwhelmed, some translations may even put it this way, consumed or swallowed up by sorrow. And what that really does is point back to a story in the book of Numbers where there were a p- group of people who rebelled against God, and it says that the ground opened up and swallowed them up and carried them into the depths of Sheol, or what we would refer to as hell. There was this determined, prideful, angry resentment, and the very ground swallowed them up and led to their demise, took them straight into hell. And this is what Paul's saying. Paul actually is going to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly grief produces what? Repentance. But there's a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow that he says produces death. And this is the idea. If we as a church say, all right, he looks like he's sorry, but we're going to leave him out there for a while and make sure. We're going to make him grovel for a little while. Look, he, he's in a place of, of godly sorrow. He's repenting. But if you keep him out there just for purely punitive, uh, uh, pu- purely, that's hard to say, purely punitive reasons, that, then you're risking moving this into a whole different kind of sorrow where things like bitterness and anger and resentment can come in, can build a stronghold in this guy's heart. And the whole goal of church discipline in the first place is to shepherd his heart. And so at a certain point, he needs to come back in so that he's not swallowed up. The goal in excommunication is not to get rid of him. The goal is restoration. And so Jesus even says, Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, now look how far Paul takes this. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's like, hey, open up the door, arms out, bring him in, prodigal son story. Robe back on the shoulders, ring back on the finger, celebration that he's returned. Love him. This is what Paul's saying. Love him, I beg you. But now let's time out and let's just talk about this for a second. Can we just admit that's not easy to do? That's hard, right? That's really difficult to do. People who publicly humiliate you, slander you, throw you under the bus, they're not high on the let me affirm my love to them list for most of us, right? I mean, it's just not easy to do. Or if it was the other case where if he is the guy from 1 Corinthians who's involved in sexual immorality, that is not an easy people to love. That's icky, And so to say, not only are we going to let him back into the church, we're going to completely forgive him everything. We're going to re-robe him, if you will. We're going to affirm our love for him. Man, Paul, you're asking for a lot. But this is the reality of what tends to happen. This is true. And please, pretend I'm sitting there with you, okay? I'm not preaching this. I'm preaching this to myself as well. This is a human condition. That there's a guy named Stephen Carter, and he writes about this. The reality is... We can sit here in this congregation today and I can preach about forgiveness and restoration and all of you guys will nod your heads. You're right, man. Forgiveness, that's what we do. Amen. 
But what the tendency happens, or what tends to happen is when we leave this place and the rubber hits the road and it's a specific situation revolving us, especially if it's a hard one, rather than defaulting to this, we start looking for excuses or reasons why we can say that our situation is the exception to the rule. That's what human nature, that's what our heart tends to do, does it not? That's our default setting. And so Stephen Carter writes of this, he says, he writes of the not so subtle notion that whenever our religious convictions conflict with what one has to do to please themselves or to get ahead in life, one is expected in our modern culture to ignore the religious demands and act, well, more rationally. So the idea meaning to do something like that is completely irrational. And so in our culture, we're fine with these beliefs, we're fine with religious convictions, but then when the rubber hits the road and there's a difficult situation that now is going to affect us, our tendency is to put the religious conviction aside and let our own pride, our own desires, whatever they may be, rule the day. So we'll shake our heads about forgiveness here until we leave and we think of that one person we're supposed to forgive. And then we go, well, but I don't know if he's really repentant. He's got to suffer a little while longer so I can be sure. I don't even think he cried. That tends to be our default setting. But look what Paul says. That's thunder of God saying, yes. Just so you know, that noise right there. But take a look what Paul says, verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is what Paul says. This issue of forgiveness, of church discipline, doing the hard thing of discipline, but also doing the even harder thing of forgiveness and reclothing the person who sinned against us, it is a test of Christian maturity. It's an absolute test of Christian maturity. Now, the first thing I want you to understand before we really develop that is Paul's conclusion on this, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Here's what you got to know. When Christian relationships fracture, and I'm talking believer to believer here, okay? When Christian relationships fracture, when we walk away from someone who's wounded us and we don't do as Paul does, keep trying to seek restitution, praying for them, try to work those things out. When the relationship stays fractured, listen, God doesn't get the glory, but Satan gets joy. You have to understand this. This is a ploy of Satan. He wants you to have fractured relationships with other Christians in particular. Now you would say, it seems like he would be really excited about keeping us away from unbelievers. And that's true, but there's a certain little measure of joy he gets when two Christians end relationship. And it's very significant and very important. And here's why. God has given us two institutions that are tangible manifestations of the gospel. Two of them. One of them is marriage. In marriage, a husband and wife stand before one another and they enter a ceremony, which is really a covenant. They make a covenant with one another. And what is it they say? For better or for worse, in sickness, in health, in richer, in poorer, they take all the conditions out and they say, I will be faithful. I will love you no matter what happens. It is an absolute covenant ceremony of unconditional love. 
And so the two are married, they kiss, they go on the honeymoon, and then that starts what? A lifetime of practicing forgiveness, does it not? Let's just be honest, married people, amen? That is a lifetime of practicing what you just said you were going to do. Because we're all sinners, and we're all broken, and we're all horribly selfish, and we all want our own way. And now you take two of those people, and you put them in a house and tell them to share everything. And so you literally, you stand before one another, you say, I'll forgive and love no matter what. And then by the power of the Spirit and through years of practice, by God's glory, a gospel-centered marriage gives a picture to the world around us of the kind of unconditional love that says, I'm going to love her no matter what. He gained weight and he grew hair in places I didn't even know you could grow hair, but I'm going to love him. Those kinds of things. Don't say amen, wives, but we know. <laughs> okay, so, so one of the institutions that gives a picture of the gospel is marriage. That's why God hates divorce. So you, you see this commitment that's happened that's an opportunity to model Christ-centered forgiveness to the world around, and then it's fractured and it ends with, I'll never be with you again. But that's not the gospel. And so God hates divorce for that reason. And the second institution God gives us to give a tangible representation of the gospel is the church. He gives the church. And so the idea is, is that within this church is a gospel community that exists to bring glory to God by being the body of Christ. There's something about the church by design that when people look at us, it should give testimony to Jesus. It should give testimony to the gospel. And so we, of all people on the earth, are to be the people that will forgive one another. That when people are wronged, we're repenting to one another and we're forgiving one another and we're loving one another, regardless of whether we think they really deserve it in the moment. And, and the moment that we go, I'm going to leave him outside the walls because I don't think he's proven that he's sorry enough. I don't think he's really earned that sort of forgiveness yet. Or the thing he did was too severe for me to let him back in right now. We are preaching a false gospel. Because what we're saying is, I will give you forgiveness once you've earned it. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, I am giving you by grace salvation when you definitely have not earned it. And so if we start behaving in such a way that we make people earn the forgiveness like that, we've preached a false gospel. And we failed in our mission as a church. And we're not shepherding people outside. And we're not shepherding our own heart to make sure that we're not bitter about issues and growing in those sorts of areas as well. When the gospel says, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what this room is for, to model that with one another, to work through hard stuff. Now, not only is it a false gospel, but it is also, as I said, a sign of Christian immaturity. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you about this situation because this is a test I'm testing you on this. I'm looking to see where you are in your Christian walk in this. And so a test of Christian maturity is not how few rated R movies you watch or any of those sorts of things. The kind of things that the Bible gives us as tests, places that we can even see ourselves how far we are in this walk of maturity to be like Jesus, this is one of them. Forgiveness. Doing the hard work of discipline, confronting others when they sin against you, and the even harder work of forgiving them. 
And so we could talk about this. There's, a, there's so many passages in Scripture we could address with regards to forgiveness. We could do the scare tactic ones, and they're real. I'm not dogging them, but ones like Matthew 6. If you forgive others your trespassers, your, your trespasses, then your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, your Father who is in heaven will not forgive you. That's a, we don't like that verse, do we? Scary verse. Most people aren't memorizing that one and putting it on a bumper sticker. You know what I mean? Um, or there's Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, where Jesus ends by saying, this and more shall the heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive those. We don't like that one either. But there's other passages. I mean, Jesus says that the wise man who built his house on the rock that was able to withstand the storm, he's the person who heard the word of God and what? Come on, you know this. Did it. It's not just, oh, you heard the word, you know the word, but it's that you do the word of God. James will go even further with that and say, be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you just hear the word of God, if you hear a message on forgiveness and then you leave and choose not to forgive anyone, you're fooling yourselves if you think you're godly. That's what James says. There's all sorts of passages like that. Um, but I think, I, I, I think there's a different reason I'd like us to consider this morning that's much more compelling reason that we need to be the kind of people that forgive one another and that we should strive, as Paul did, to work through difficult things in relationships, especially within the church. And, and it's this. Paul actually says in verse 10, look closely. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. That word presence that's right there, if you have a pencil, this isn't changing the word of God, but you can do this. Right next to presence, write face. In the face of Jesus Christ. It's a weird thing for Paul to say. My forgiveness because of the face and in the face of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. Where did Paul learn to forgive? How did Paul learn to be a guy who forgives people? He wasn't a very forgiving guy early on, I assure you. But then one day he's on a road to a place called Damascus, and he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Not because he was looking for him. He wasn't reading the purpose-driven life or in love dare or anything like that, and he was on like day 30, go to Damascus. It wasn't anything like that. He was going to Damascus. In his hand were papers that made it legal for him to arrest Christians to arrest the church and kill them. That's what he was doing. And then he has a face-to-face encounter with the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, and everything changes. The entire trajectory of his life changed when he face-to-face came to Jesus Christ. He's going this way, and he's going this way now. And I don't mean like he stopped going to Damascus. I mean, his entire trajectory of his life changed. And so then he'll write, as we're going to get to, is maybe one of the most quoted verses we ever use here. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he says, and we all with unveiled face, being face to face, nothing in between, nothing hiding it, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then he wrote in 1 Corinthians, we studied a a few months ago, he says, now you imitate me as I imitate who? Christ. So think about this for just a second. I know it's a hot day. We're almost done. Track with me. This is so important. So Paul is going to kill Christians. He meets Jesus face to face. 
becomes a servant of Christians. And he says that as we behold Jesus Christ, the goal is, the purpose is he is turning us from one degree to another into the image of who? Christ. He's turning us into the image of Christ. He says, imitate me as I imitate who? Christ. Now, this is the idea. The, the issue of forgiveness is not so much about that guy that wounded you, and it's much more about you. This is what Paul's saying, even when I'm, I'm testing you. I want to see where you're at with this situation. The idea is, is that we are being molded into the image of Christ. And this is significant. I want you to see how big a deal this is, because, I, look, let's just, I understand. Some of you have been wounded horribly by people who claim to be Christians. We have people in the world out here who have been raped and molested by Christian leaders. I mean, there are people that have been horrifically wounded. There are people who were raised up in Christian households by people who, dads who beat their kid in one minute and then threw Bible verses at them the next. So it's one thing to say, okay, um, your coworker ate your ham sandwich out of the office refrigerator, you should forgive him. All right, no big deal, right? Although we make them big deals, but no big deal. It's another thing to say, your father abused you for 20 years. Are you going to forgive him? That's, let's be honest. And there's a sense where it can ring so pseudo-spiritual. Oh, forgive, forgive, forgive. I, I, look, I'm a very logical, practical, down-to-earth guy. I totally get that. When hard things happen, hard things it's difficult to forgive. It's one thing to forgive stuff on this level, but that high tier level of sin and wounds against us, those are hard, right? But I want to show you what an emphasis Scripture puts on this. And with the idea of the image of Christ being involved from a passage, you probably have no clue that it's actually there, but it's one you know real well. If you're a person who's ever been wounded before, you've been through a really difficult thing, death in the family, abuse, whatever it is, and you're in Christian community or around Christian community, odds are at some point, someone has thrown this verse to you. Maybe in, a, in, a, in such a way that you wanted to punch them. I'll give you that. But this is a verse, Romans 8, 28. Could you put that up, please? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Really popular verse. Can I get an amen if you've heard this verse 50 times in your life? Yeah. Amen. Really popular verse. And this is a fantastic verse to go to people in the right time. Like when someone's baby dies, don't go to them that day and say, well, but God's working all things. Just sit with them and pray. You know what I mean? But at the right time, this is a good passage to take people to. This is, look, hard things do happen in life. You're right. This is not the world God designed. Sin is, has, has corrupted and changed everything. But God has made a promise to you that he will bring good things out of the difficulty that you go through. That's great news. Amen? That's a great promise. It is not a promise for everyone. It's a promise to who? To the church. It's a promise to the church. Because the end result of those who reject Jesus Christ is not going to be good. But in this passage, it says, and we know all those, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paraphrase, if the, for God's children, everything's going to be worked out for good. Now, do you know what follows that verse? It's one of those verses we don't want to talk about. It's a debated verse. It's an angry verse. It's a that, I don't even want to hear about that. It uses words like predestination and stuff like that that has caused, interestingly enough, division in churches throughout history. 
So I'm not attacking predestination today. We taught through Romans a while ago. You can go get the CD or, or go online, whatever you can find it. We're skipping that on purpose today. No emails, please, right? But look what follows that. Look at, let's put the next one up. Start at the beginning. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he conformed to the image of his son. Seems like something's missing in that. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now think about this as a whole. God says, the difficult things that you go through in life, my children, my followers, the difficult things you go through in life, I'm going to work them for good. What is the good God's going to work in them? Is it that he's going to make life easier for us later? Is it that he's going to remove us from the difficulty and show us how amazing that is? Is it that he's going to just pave our paths with Easter lilies? No. The good work that he promises to do in Romans 8, 28 is that we will be conformed to the image of his son. This is what this means. When you go through hard times, he's making you more like Jesus. When someone wounds you, and it is your responsibility as a Christian to forgive them, He's making you more like Jesus. Through the difficult things that we go through in life, we've been given gospel opportunities to do what? To do what Jesus did. Because think about ourselves. Think about Paul. Killed Christians. Why do you think Paul has the ability to forgive someone that would publicly humiliate him? Why do you think Paul has the ability to continue to show love to a church that drives him insane? You know he's got so many letters that he started. You bunch of idiots. Oh, not that one. All right, you bunch of, and then the Holy Spirit kicks in and he writes the good ones, right? And then we know that had to happen. But what is it that makes Paul able to forgive them and extend such love? He was killing Christians and Jesus forgave him. And Jesus moved first in forgiveness. It's the reality of it. We will never be good at forgiveness if we hang on to religion. Because if you're hanging on to religion, you're always looking for a reason to forgive them. Now, now you're right. Church discipline says that until genuine repentance has happened that they're not coming in, but you can forgive someone even without bringing them in here, even for your own heart's sake. And so if you sit back and go, I'll forgive them once they've groveled enough. I'll forgive them once they've earned it. That's religion, and you will always struggle with forgiveness. If your eyes are always on the person, you will struggle with forgiveness. Because I'll just be honest with you, amongst all of this, there's not a lot of good reasons to forgive anybody. Because the truth is, we're just going to let each other down again eventually anyway, right? But if you stop again and, and you look inward first, a true application of the gospel always starts with ourselves. If we look in and go, man, look what he's forgiven me. Because consider what our sin is. It's an open act declaration of rebellion against God. It's yeah, I understand your authority, but in this moment, I want to do this. I don't want to listen to what you do. So I don't view your lordship or your authority as being worthy of being followed right now. I'll do my own thing. We do that against the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who created heaven and earth. That is an open declaration of rebellion against God. And he forgives us. 
The blood of Christ covered all our sin. And so Paul can look at himself and he can look at his own life and he can look at this whole situation and go, man, I have beheld the image of the glory of God. And the purpose in my life is that God is molding me into the image of the glory. He's making me more like Jesus day by day. And this guy has wounded me and it's painful and it's difficult, but this is an opportunity for the Spirit of God to make me more like Jesus. I'm taking it. That's what forgiveness is all about. That's what the whole thing is about, to understand that we have been forgiven and to be changed into the image of Christ. You forgiving others is more about you becoming like Jesus than it is whether that person deserved it or not. Take it. Some of you got people on your heart right now and you're like, not that one. It was so hard for me to write a letter to my father years ago forgiving him for the devastation that he caused our family. And it was the best thing I ever did. He hasn't repented yet. I, last time I was in North Carolina, I called him twice. It was his phone, voicemail. There's his voice. First time I'd heard it in 10 years. Didn't answer. But I forgave him. And, and slowly, but slowly, and don't get me wrong, I am so not like Jesus, right? But I'm closer I'm closer than I would have been if I hadn't have forgiven him. And the end goal of all of our lives is that we are created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he calls us to do. And church, the world needs this. And church, within this room, we all need this. We need this kind of community. We need this kind of love. We need this kind of covering for one another. That's why the scriptures say love covers a multitude of sins. I'll just close with this one story. Sam's going to come up and lead us in the last song. But you guys know Corey Ten Boon? When we were in Israel, we had the opportunity to visit Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the uh, um, Holocaust Museum there in Israel. And uh, while we were there, um, it, was, it was just horrific to see the things that happened. I, I, you forget how bad that was. One place in particular was killing 10,000 Jews every single day. 10,000 Jews. And Corey Ten Boone, if you haven't read it, I cannot recommend it enough, wrote a book called The Hiding Place that tells her story and her sister's story of how they survived a place called Ravensbrook. It was a concentration camp. She was part of that. And uh, her sister died there. They went through horrific abuses and all this stuff. And, and she went on to have incredible ministry of the gospel through those hardships. But there's a story there at the end of the book that will put you in tears. And also, it just still brings horror to my heart in so many ways when I think about it. Because she goes some years later to speak. And she's at a church. And in the congregation is one of the guards who had so mercilessly abused her for so long. And so she teaches. And it's one of those things. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before, but sometimes, especially if there's conflict with some, uh, there can be like one person in the audience that just looks like their head is 10 times bigger than everyone else's. And you just can't but see them in everything you're doing. I can't even imagine the grace God had to give her to preach that sermon or to, to teach that Sunday. But then when it was over, well, let me just read it to you. I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. 
He was the first of our actual jailers that I had ever seen. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blenched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, and he was beaming and bowing. And this is what he said. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people of my home the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, it was as if a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. That's unbelievable. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Church, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Church, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Amen. Will you stand? Let's sing.